So right now I'm walking up to the building and uh, the first thing that will happen is um, screening. So we'll have a gentleman there who will take my temperature. I'll sign my name in, sign that I have no symptoms, which I don't. Talise Nieto volunteers in San Antonio's public health department. And if I am not running a fever, I will be able to go and um, pick up my first case. 98.2. Perfect. Okay, thank you, sir. Thank you. Have a nice day. She's a nursing student, and she comes into this office three days a week. Hi, good morning. Hi, good morning. Do you look, we all wear our off-whites. Yeah. I don't have off-white, but I did think about it, so I was like, I want to kind of match. Like, oh, she picks up a stack of papers. It's medical information about a person who recently tested positive for COVID-19. Um, so I just picked up my very first case of the day, and now I'm walking over to one of the offices to start working on it. Um... We've got this case now. She's kind of a private investigator, but she's not tracking a person. She's a public health private investigator, and she's tracking a virus. She starts with the virus's last confirmed location. And then go ahead and get in contact with that patient um, to follow up with some more specific questions or anything else that I may be missing. She picks up the phone and starts her investigation. This is Talis giving you a call from the San Antonio Metropolitan Health District. How are you doing today? We wanted to uh, call you and gather some information due to your uh, recent infection. One question at a time, she gathers information. Do you remember the first date of um, you know your symptom onset? What she's doing here, this private eye work, is called contact tracing. And if we, as a society, are ever going to get out of our houses again and have some semblance of a normal life, we'll need contact tracers. We'll need a lot of them. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Today, a closer look at contact tracing what it means, how it works, and how it can help us win the fight against COVID-19. By the way, what you heard there with Talise, that was not an actual contact tracing call. For privacy reasons, she read the script for us that she uses for each call. Okay, so right now, health departments all over the country are hiring dozens of people, and they're taking on more volunteers, people like Talise, to find out who might have been exposed to the COVID virus. They want to let each person know who's been exposed, and they want them to isolate themselves. The idea is to stop the spread of the virus right there, to break the chain of transmission, like they did in Dallas in 2014. Today, we are providing the information that an individual traveling from Liberia has been diagnosed with Ebola in the United States. On September 30th, 2014, then-CDC Director Tom Frieden was telling Americans that one of the deadliest viruses on the planet had traveled to Texas. Uh, we received in our laboratory today uh, specimens from the individual, tested them, and they tested positive for Ebola. Thomas Eric Duncan had been staying with a family in an apartment complex in Dallas since arriving from Liberia. He'd been in the United States, infected for 10 days. 
Who else had he infected? How would those in a now terrified city know if they were safe? We identify all people who may have had contact with the patient while he could have been infectious. Using those public health PIs, contact tracers. We find the contacts, identify them, and make sure that they're traced every day for 21 days, and if they develop a fever, that they're immediately isolated. Frieden said at the time, contact tracing was, quote, core public health work. It's what we do in this country for a variety of infectious diseases, and it's what we do at CDC globally in Ebola cases. In Dallas, the spread of Ebola in 2014 was limited to two people beyond the man from Liberia. Part of the reason for that was contact tracers. I personally think uh, epidemiology is fun. Six years later, the coronavirus has landed and contact tracers are busy once again. Andrea Valadez is another volunteer. It's fun to me and exciting to kind of be able to start off somewhere, backtrack and get all the information you need to kind of paint a picture. So it is epidemiology is disease detective work. So the science of epidemiology, the study of diseases and how they spread, has always involved a bit of detective work. In this case, doing contact tracing, you are, I mean, you're starting off with a case, you know somebody's positive, you have the labs to prove it. Um, Now you're just going to try to figure out where they got it from, or where were they, or who they may have exposed. Now, this detective work is in the hands of students like Andrea. Well, she's actually no longer a student. She just got her master's degree. Technically, it was supposed to be this Saturday. Um, I got the official email this morning. So, bittersweet timing to uh, jump into public health officially. By the beginning of April, while the number of COVID cases ticked upward, the city knew it needed to do contact tracing. They sent out a call to local professional students, health professional students in San Antonio. So at least trying to get individuals that have some previous knowledge of how health works. They started getting people on board to try to get them trained. So at the city's request, a couple of local universities sent out emails to their nursing students, med school students, and public health students, and a lot of people responded. Now they have more than 80 people training to do it, and they want to hire more. So I'm volunteering about... I think about 12 hours a week right now. I'm going in twice a week. I know other volunteers. There are some who are doing 40 hours I've seen, or it seems like they're there five days a week. I mean, nobody's forcing us to go in and work. We're doing this out of our own doing just to try to actually help in whatever ways we can. Now, on any given day, a handful of people are at the public health department's office and they're making phone call after phone call. So an interview can take anywhere from 15 to 60 minutes. It really just depends on um, the individual. We'll usually get the basic information, try to get a sense of their symptoms and when they started. And then we kind of start backtracking from there, ask if they've traveled anywhere in the past two weeks before their symptoms started. The next step, and this is kind of the heart of contact tracing, they start to build a timeline day by day, hour by hour, of every possible contact with another person this patient could have had. We start focusing on two days before their symptoms started and get a more specific timeline as to where were you, where did you go, where you're at work, who were you around at work, were you home, building a timeline and then building a list of contacts that they've been around. 
It's a challenge to piece together so many details, and any number of things can make it more difficult. For example, language comes up often. I did have this one couple who, um, sweetest people on earth, uh, they only spoke Spanish as well. Uh, so that's been also an issue is language barriers, is sometimes people aren't able to speak with somebody who speaks their language. Um, this couple were Spanish only, super sweet, gave them the information that they needed, helped educate them. But then after her call, I tried connecting them with local resources to try to ensure that they didn't have to go out for groceries or they didn't have to um, leave to pick up their prescriptions. Sometimes, Andrea says, as she meticulously combs the details of a person's life, she gets to know them. I think it's great just to be able to really hear the stories that people have to say, um, being able to speak to them and realizing that it's a human on the other end of that. Um, I love being able to listen to other people's stories. Uh, To me, it's just fascinating to see how different we all are. Uh, But really, at the end of the day, we're kind of all the same as well. Okay, so that doesn't sound so hard. A couple of phone calls with some friendly people who are perfectly happy to share their recent history with you. You find out who they've been hanging out with. You give them tips on grocery delivery. Pandemic solved, right? Well, individuals in the hearing room are at least six feet apart. As a result, there's no room for the public to attend in person. No. Unedited recording will be available on the committee's website. On May 12th, there was a hearing in the U.S. Senate where members of the White House Coronavirus Task Force gave an update on how the response to the pandemic is going. Some senators, including the chairman, are participating by video conference. Like most hearings now, barely anyone was there in person, leaving the chamber empty, echoey, and surreal. There were familiar faces. Elizabeth Warren showed up. She put a pointed question to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the country's top public health expert. If we don't do better on testing, on contact tracing, and on social distancing, will deaths from coronavirus necessarily increase? Fauci, in a voice perhaps raspier than it was when most of the country met him two months ago, gave a straight answer. Of course, if you do not do an adequate response, we will have the deleterious consequence of more infections and more deaths. And that's the The current director of the CDC, Robert Redfield, testified that day that contact tracing is critical. The United States still has not engaged in a national contact tracing program. Isn't that right? When the outbreak started, sir, we had an aggressive contact tracing program, but unfortunately, as the cases rose, it went beyond the capacity and we went to mitigation, so we lost the the containment edge, clearly. Okay, so where are we on that? Let's find out. My name is Selena Simmons-Duffin, and I am NPR's health policy reporter. Selena has been watching and covering it as the country's contact tracers got swamped over the last couple of months, something Redfield described in his testimony. The CDC director, Robert Redfield, has talked a lot about contact tracing and how much he wants the CDC to be helping to stand up this big federal force. But right now, most of the country's contact tracers work or volunteer in local health departments and the burden of finding volunteers like Talise and Andrea, as well as hiring new epidemiologists, mostly falls to local governments. So Selena wanted to know, well, 
how many contact tracers do states actually have right now? And what I found when I first did the survey was a total plan for about 36,000 contact tracers um, with 7,000 contact tracers currently in place. If you ask public health experts how many contact tracers the entire country needs, you'll get a few different answers. But all of those answers will be higher than 36,000. Recently, more estimates seem to be kind of zeroing in on the 180,000 as the figure for how many contact tracers are needed. So 180,000 when we currently have somewhere around 7,000. States are way understaffed for this, and even their plans to expand that workforce, they're not enough. Although there is progress. I mean, it's kind of like this mixed picture where you're saying, okay, that's you know half of what health experts have been asking for, but it is a substantial increase from what exists normally in health departments and even shows that some states that might not have been making concrete plans are starting to do that and maybe take this more seriously. There is a ton of variation between states. Some are closer to assembling the force of tracers they need than others. Currently, the only state that officially has enough contact tracers is South Dakota. Each state has its own challenges. Texas has a bunch of them. It has four major cities and huge swaths of countryside with more livestock than people. More than 100 languages are spoken here, and a variety of cultures coexist and all consider themselves 100% Texan. Oh, and it has that international border. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Luis Aurigui. I'm with the El Paso Department of Public Health. El Paso is a thriving city on that border. We've recently received notice that you were tested for COVID-19, and I'd like to ask you a couple questions just to see how you're doing and if we can identify family members or other loved ones around you that we should be keeping an eye on. Is that all right with you? Filled with people whose lives and families straddle that line between two countries. Buenos días, mi nombre es Sara y hablo del Departamento de Salud Pública. La razón de esta llamada es para platicar con ustedes. You can't forget that if you're a contact tracer in El Paso. So you really have to understand this region. If you are going to contact trace successfully, you have to look at both sides. Angela Kacherga is the news director at the public radio station KTEP in El Paso and is also a longtime border reporter. I mean, this is a place where we have very strong binational family ties, business ties. People go back and forth across the border. And um, so anybody who's doing contact tracing, first of all, um, on either side, you need to have dual language, you know, bilingual, bicultural contact tracers who understand the region and, and, and understand the nature of these extended families. Public health officials in El Paso don't have the authority to just sort of call people across the border to Juarez and ask probing questions. Instead, they have to collaborate with other governments. I talked to Fernando Gonzalez. He's a lead epidemiologist for the city of El Paso's health department. So we provide the information for the Mexican authorities or New Mexico health authorities to contact those individuals. So we've got multiple state lines, different layers of, of local government. 
and federal governments in both countries and state governments, so that that does pose a real, real challenge. The U.S. and Mexico have restricted non-essential travel across the border because of the virus. But in El Paso, lots of people still cross the border every day. Some to visit relatives, others to work. Um, Some are essential workers, so we still do have significant numbers of people going back and forth. Essential workers, of course, are the ones most likely to actually need a little bit of contact tracing done. I talked to the chief medical officer and infectious disease expert at a hospital in El Paso at Delso Medical Center, Dr. Ogachika Alozi. The fact that we have a border, and it's a relatively fluid border until recently where people go back and forth, multiplies the difficulty of contact tracing by multitudes. This close border relationship uh, between health departments may be critical, but it's also being strained by the pandemic. And I understand that historically we've had great relationships with the public health department there. I think that in the trying times of a pandemic, it tests the, the strength of those relationships very quickly. Everyone I talk to feels like on both sides of the border, we're really playing catch-up and seeing some really deadly consequences. So they feel that if they're give, if they're able, able to speed up contact tracing, if people uh, understand, which by now they hope they do, some of the efforts that individuals can do to protect themselves and their families, that they, they will have at least a fighting chance to save some lives. So let's take a minute here to talk about the science of what contact tracers do, shall we? Everybody knows sort of what a roller coaster looks like. At the top of the roller coaster and going down, it has a really sharp downward slope, and then you sort of glide out. So exponential growth is a roller coaster backwards. Dr. Barbara Taylor is an assistant professor of infectious disease at UT Health San Antonio and chair of the San Antonio and Bear County COVID-19 health transition team. As she said, she's talking there about exponential growth, which is a term you may have heard over the last couple of months, but maybe didn't know exactly what it meant. It starts out slow because you start with one person and then that one person leads to two people who are infected. You um, go from two people then to four people who are infected and then four to 16 and you just keep going. When I first tried Fabergé Organics shampoo with pure... The Gen Xers, like me, might remember that shampoo commercial from back in the 80s. It was so good, I told two friends about it. And they told two friends. And so on, and so on, and so on. Yeah. So with the COVID virus, if you're infected, you might give it to two friends. And each of them might give it to two friends. So now there's four. And each of them might give it to two friends. That's 16 and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. So contact tracing is really important because it basically allows you to find out who could potentially be spreading the virus and then enlist them in efforts to stop the spread. So if you got infected, who among your contacts might also be infected? your neighbor you wave to across the street, or maybe someone who walked the same path you walked through the park like a half hour later? Or how about the guy who brought you groceries in a no-contact delivery? Probably not. So far, the best data we have is that fortunately, 
SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is not an airborne pathogen. It is a droplet-based pathogen. There have been a couple studies that suggested otherwise, but it really does seem like it's droplet, which means droplets can only go so far. They're heavier, and so they fall out of the air. And so droplets, it's about six feet is what would be your blast radius of an individual who is infected. Knowing this about how the virus transmits is important. Who was in an infected person's blast radius? So there's being near someone and being in the range of their droplets. And then the other way is handling something that someone else has essentially coughed on or exposed and then touching your mouth or your eyes. A contact tracer needs to talk with those people. The two, then the four, then the 16, all of them. Those people need to be monitored, tested, and isolated. And this needs to continue until a contact tracer has run out of people to talk to, to test, and to isolate. When they're all isolated, when the people in that cluster stop interacting with other people, well, then there's nowhere else for the virus to go. There are no more hosts for it to infect. It's the end of the line for that particular cluster of infections. The roller coaster ride, it's over. That's how you break the chain of transmission with contact tracers. If you do it with enough clusters, that's how you stop the spread of this virus. Today, I'm going to talk to you about the basics of contact tracing for COVID-19. This new army of contact tracers needs training, and there are all kinds of places to get it. So let's talk now about contact tracing and how it's used for COVID-19 prevention. This, what you're hearing right here, is a free online training course for COVID contact tracers. Emily Gurley, a PhD epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, put it together. CDC also has printable contact tracing training plans on its website. These resources are handy, not just for tracers working for departments of public health, but also for other types of organizations. Okay, so everybody in my family is going to like, the dog's going to cry and the, <laughs> all the noisemakers are going off. Sorry. That's Lisa Lewis uh, having some kind of party there. She works for the biggest gas and electric provider in San Antonio, CPS Energy. CPS Energy provides an essential service and it takes disaster planning very seriously. And as the virus became more prevalent in our community, um, we started getting employees contacting us to, to let us know that they had come into contact with someone potentially who'd been exposed. Lewis says they decided they couldn't wait until someone tested positive. They needed to isolate anyone who was even a potential risk. So what that looked like was a journeyman so that's somebody who is doing line work on a daily basis as part of a crew. You've probably seen journeymen climbing up electric poles on your street. They sort of shimmy up there with special spikes strapped to their boots. A journeyman contacts us and says, my family member has been exposed and I've been around my family member. And so that initiates a process of us going back through and validating what crews that individual had worked on and it was lots of conversations around how close were you? How long did you spend with them? Where did you go after that? Did you work with any other crews while you were in this process? And so it was just essentially a, a, a series of questions. In other words, the electric company started 
contact tracing, even if they didn't really know that's what they were doing. Oh, Lord, no. We didn't even know we needed to do that. Um, (laughs) I just don't know that we ever really thought about what contact tracing would look like in this kind of scenario. And they were learning, as any epidemiologist will tell you, just how hard contact tracing can be. It is a labor-intensive process. It takes a lot of prompting and more questions than you think it would. I don't know about you, but I don't always remember what I did yesterday or the day before that and where I went and who I talked to. And there have been days where you're, you're chasing down 20 people and there have been days where you're chasing down two people. Oh, the glamorous life of a public health private investigator. There are a couple of countries during this pandemic that have gotten a lot of attention for the way they've managed to keep the spread of COVID under control. One of them is South Korea. South Korea and the United States announced their first positive coronavirus cases on the same day. Since then, according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, the number of people who've died of COVID in South Korea per 100,000 is 0.5. That's less than one. In the United States, just over 26 people have died per 100,000. That's a big difference. So what's the difference? We asked someone who's in South Korea, Anthony Kuhn. I am uh, the, the sole based correspondent for NPR, and I report on South Korea, North Korea, and Japan. So, Anthony, as I just mentioned, South Korea reported its first case of COVID on the exact same day as we did. But the U.S. death toll is right now around 90,000, while South Korea's is under 300. So what do you think are the reasons for that remarkable difference? One is just basically, uh, you know, good health care. Uh, South Korea is known for having a, a very affordable and very high quality healthcare system. Uh, they're third in the world in attracting attracting medical tourists after Germany and the U.S. Uh, and the basic infrastructure is just really good. Uh, they have a very high ratio of hospital beds to people. The other important part, which uh, has been widely reported, is testing. Kuhn visited one of these testing sites. We are now at one of four drive-through testing centers set up by the Seoul Municipal Government. And a silver Mercedes sedan has just rolled up the hill and stopped in front of one of four gray shipping containers used as makeshift offices. And there's a white canopy over each one. And the car has stopped and medical personnel in white protective suits and goggles are now testing the driver. We haven't talked much about testing in this episode, but it's a crucial component of contact tracing. You have to know who's infected to trace their contacts, right? And since you could be infected with COVID and not know it, you need accurate tests, and you need a lot of them. South Korea's got tests and contact tracing. I live pretty close to a cluster that broke out uh, recently. It's, It's the biggest sort of it's, it's a new cluster that's broken out in recent days. Well, that's concerning, of course. South Korea has had the virus well under control. People have been free to leave their houses and live their lives. And so I get these uh, text alert messages on my f- cell phone 
telling me where patients have been. Okay. And so um, I click on a link in the text message. It takes me to the local government website. And then I can see all the places that the infected people have been. Each case, each patient gets a number. And then you see in great detail, you know, what restaurants, what shops uh, these people have been to, uh, whether they were wearing masks or not, how long they spent in each place. And based on that information, I know to either avoid those places in case they haven't been uh, disinfected yet, or if I was in the same place at the same time, uh, I might want to go get tested for COVID-19. And there's a reason the government is providing so much information now. This isn't the first epidemic the country has faced. And finally tonight, a non-war event, the continuing spread of a mystery disease. Thanks, uh, Kwame. In non-Iraq war news today, President Bush gave U.S. health officials the power to quarantine people with SARS. There was the first SARS in 2003. In South Korea, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And there was MERS in 2015. At this market in Seoul, they've brought out the big guns in the fight against MERS. The government has repeatedly called for calm, but as fear of contamination spreads, few seem to be listening. When people felt, again, like the government didn't provide enough information to them, South Koreans felt like they were engaging in some type of a cover-up. So, building on that previous experience, the government knew to fast-track accurate tests and set up the lab logistics quickly. With accurate, fast, widespread testing in place, they were able to do contact tracing more easily. But they also overcompensated for their previous lack of information by now providing incredibly detailed personal information. Overall, based on polls, most people approve of this approach, but not all South Koreans are comfortable with it. I interviewed a privacy advocate named Oh Byung-il. He is the president of a civic group called the Korean Progressive Network. We're concerned, he says, about whether the amount of personal information that's currently being disclosed is enough or too much. And he thinks it's too much, and his group has called on the South Korean government to release less personal information. And as an example, he told me about a case in which a South Korean man comes back from China and while he's under self-quarantine, he shares a meal with his sister-in-law, who then gets infected. And then the speculation erupts on South Korean social media that the brother and sister-in-law might have been having an extramarital affair. Stigmatization and shame are the byproducts of this high-tech contact tracing. Let's talk about that recent outbreak where Kuhn lives. It was traced back to a 29-year-old man who went to several bars and clubs that night, before then, the area had zero confirmed cases for several days in a row. This new outbreak, traced to that man, now includes at least 100 people. So what they did back in 2015 was uh, they put together a system that gathers data from cell phone operators and credit card companies uh, and surveillance cameras, um, 
and that enabled them to track people. So imagine that. First, you test positive for this virus. Next, the government releases detailed information about you, like, say, 21-year-old American TPR intern who lives in northeast downtown San Antonio and attends Trinity University. Uh, wouldn't take some people very long to figure out that's one of our podcast producers, Dominic Anthony Walsh. Now, imagine that at some point, Dominic was doing an activity or went to a place that he didn't want everyone to know about. Once the internet identifies him, and this is the same in all countries, rumors will swirl. People who get stigmatized feel like the stigmatization, the you know, being shunned by friends and coworkers and all that is is worse than the disease itself. And, you know, they feel like it's their fault for getting sick. Even after they've recovered, they feel like they're at fault. Um, and it can be devastating to their lives. Kuhn stresses he doesn't think the South Korean government is shaming and stigmatizing people on purpose. I would say they, were, they are an unintended byproduct. Um, I think the system is simply intended to give information to people they can use to protect themselves. And South Koreans value their freedom. Their liberty is extremely important to them. People here are very aware of what it's like in North Korea, where people do not have freedom of movement. You have to get official permission just to go to another city. And they watch the draconian lockdown measures that happened over in China. Uh, and they're proud that they didn't have to do that because of this contact tracing, because they gave up some of their uh, privacy to get the information they, they need to protect themselves. So I think, you know, everybody has to think about this trade-off of sacrificing some privacy, uh, of course, with conditions, with, with safeguards for privacy and personal information, um, but uh, sacrificing this some of this for information that you can use to protect yourself and transparency and a feeling of trust that your government is not hiding things from you. The South Korean government has told people not to discriminate against COVID-positive patients or to stigmatize people or shun people who may have exposed others. Government officials fear if people see other people shamed and stigmatized and shunned, they'll stop getting tested themselves out of fear. And if people can't be tested and traced... Well, the South Korean government's afraid there will be another wave of infections. Also, South Korea says it will delete all of the personal information it's gathered and dismantle this whole system of data collection when the pandemic ends. So, trust. It's important capital in times of crisis, turns out. Without the trust of the public, government and public health officials have a much harder time getting people to do the basics. Wear a mask, stay at home, get a vaccine. And in the U.S., some people think politicians, the media, science and other institutions are at best broken and at worst in cahoots to commit some sort of grand conspiracy. What we learned in Liberia, it's not so different. People 
had a distrust of a health system that was broken and that the way to get that trust is sometimes through community members who already have that trust. So Amy Waters is co-medical director with Last Mile Health. That's a global nonprofit in Liberia. Waters traveled to rural parts of Liberia to help with Ebola outbreaks there. And she saw and learned the importance of trust in contact tracing. We deployed one of the largest um, contact tracing groups that had ever really been done. And at that time, more than 25,000 people in six of Liberia's counties, which are quite remote, they were identified and listed and monitored for symptoms. And many of those contact tracers, they were community workers. Liberians. And that's important. Waters says they needed trusted people from the community to do this sensitive work. Now, in the U.S., we're all in one country, but we aren't in one community. Some counties and towns don't have a lot of medical experts. Instead, people are getting conflicting advice from the local and the state and the federal governments and the internet. In Texas, for example, some cities and counties are giving different messages than the governor and the president. And a lack of a unified, clear message has led to a lack of trust. I'm really sad that people feel like they can't trust um, the government, the media, whoever they feel they can't trust, the doctors, the nurses. Um, you know, those conspiracy theories are drawn out of, out of places that are are deeply embedded in, in how someone's, you know, emotionally feeling. So I think we have to speak to those emotions and I think we have to call them out and we have to um, try to better understand where they're coming from and try to think who's the best person to reach them. So it's interesting to me that trust keeps coming up in these conversations I have with people all around the world about COVID-19. In New Zealand, a woman I spoke with about that country's strict social distancing, she said people were doing it with little pushback, in part because they trusted their prime minister. And New Zealand has crushed the curve. Anthony Kuhn in South Korea told me, as you just heard, that people there are willing to allow this high-tech contact tracing that is essentially surveillance because they trust their government not to use that information in other ways. In Sweden, there was never a full lockdown. Sweden's state epidemiologist says one of the reasons Swedes went along with a policy that was very different from those in other countries was because they trusted their leaders and they trusted each other. Three different nations, three very different policies, and their citizens mostly are doing exactly what they've been asked to do because they trust their leaders and their neighbors to do the right thing. But right now, Americans seem to be struggling with a deficit of trust, and that extends to the army of contact tracers we'll need to slow the spread of this virus while researchers work on a vaccine. There is concern people won't talk to the tracers, that they won't answer their questions, that they might even harm them. I get that. It's uncomfortable to share details of your life with a stranger. But both science and history tell us the best way to stop the burn of this virus through families and communities and states across the entire nation, short of a vaccine, 
involves contact tracing. No one wants to stay home all the time. No one wants to lose their job or their business or their home. No one likes that 90,000 of our fellow citizens have died from this virus since February either. And there's no end in sight. So what do we do? How do we live our lives and keep ourselves and our families and our communities as safe as possible? We trust science and history. We stop giving this virus new people to infect. We test and we trace. So do you have questions about this episode or coronavirus or COVID that we can look into for you? Or would you like to check in and tell us how you're doing? You can email us at petridish at tpr.org. That's Petri, spelled like my name, P-E-T-R-I-E. Special thanks this week to KTEP's Angela Kacherga and NPR's health policy reporter, Selena Simmons-Duffin, and NPR's South Korea correspondent, Anthony Kuhn, for their excellent reporting on this show. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Ben Henry and Dominic Anthony Walsh. Our sound is designed by Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. And our news director is Dan Katz. This podcast is a production of Texas Public Radio. Talk to you soon.